Join ASRM as we team up with the European Society for Human Reproduction to present the best of ESHRA and ASRM, March 2nd through the 4th, 2023 in Orlando, Florida. This exciting conference brings together experts from around the world to highlight and discuss how approaches to reproductive medicine differ between U.S. and European practices. Experience thought-provoking plenary talks along with stimulating debates and other sessions that will give you a better understanding of international differences in the practice of reproductive medicine. This meeting only happens in the U.S. once every four years, so take advantage of the opportunity to participate this spring. To learn more and register, visit www.asrm.org. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordoletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air, where we discuss the January 2023 Table of Contents. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, your co-host, and I'm joined, as always, by Eve Feinberg and Kurt Barnhart. Eve, Kurt, how are you two? Good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Good morning, Pietro. Glad to get this last episode in before the new year. Yes, we're recording before the new year. It's nice to sneak one in right at the very end. We have a lot to talk about today. There's so much good science being published in FNS these days. As always, we're going to lead off with our seminal contribution. This week, stealing it from Kurt, Eve's going to tell us a little bit more about the January seminal contribution. This is a great paper. The title of this paper is Reproductive Genetics Lab May Impact Euploid Blastocyst in Live Birth Rates, a comparison of four national labs PGTA results from vitrified donor eggs, written by first author Yona Bardos and senior author Gene O'Brien. The objective of this study was to evaluate the potential variation in the euploid blastocyst rate and live birth rate per single frozen euploid blastocyst transfer from eggs derived from a frozen donor oocyte bank. This was a retrospective cohort study using four years of data from the Donor Egg Bank USA database. For those of you not familiar with with Donor Egg Bank USA, this is a national consortium of over 200 ART practices. Oocyte donors who met strict criteria undergo ovarian stimulation, egg retrieval, and oocyte vitrification at a participating clinic. All clinics in the consortium adhere to the same vitrification and warming protocols, and they have excellent and rigid QA and QC protocols. The study evaluated the euploid blastocyst rate and live birth rate for each euploid transfer from recipients who underwent PGT. ICSI was used in all cases, and only single embryo transfer was performed. The PGT reference lab that was used was selected by the oocyte recipients clinic. Outcomes were compared among four different U.S. reproductive genetics laboratories, and all PGT was performed on an NGS platform. Secondary outcomes included the rate of aneuploidy, mosaic calls, biochemical pregnancy loss, and miscarriage rates. The PGT reference labs are blinded to the reader. And for our listeners, I already tried to get this information out of our very own Micah Hill co-author, who is a vault. I don't think that they will divulge this. 
Table two is really the meat of the paper. It looks at the various outcomes by PGT Lab and also does a pairwise comparison. And I would summarize the most interesting findings are as follows. First, Laboratory A had a euploid rate of 73.6% compared to Laboratory D, which had a euploid rate of 52.5%, and the others fall in between those two. The mosaic call rates range from 2.8% to 11.5%, with Laboratory D having the highest mosaic call rate. The live birth rates were highest in the embryos that were tested in Laboratory A, and 57.8% of embryos transferred that was that were tested in Laboratory A resulted in live birth, compared to 47.3% from Laboratory D, and miscarriage rate was not significantly different between groups. Wow, I have to say, this study has given me a lot of pause. I'm really curious to hear what you two think about it, but I think the questions that I ask myself are, do I believe this at face value? And I think the skeptic in me wants not to believe it, but admittedly, I think it's a well-designed study and there's likely truth in these findings. I guess my question is, is there something that we are not seeing in these data? Perhaps we're larger centers who have more experience in trophectoderm biopsy overrepresented in group A, and could the euploid rate be influenced by biopsy technique itself? And that was something that was discussed at, at ASRM this year. Or is it simply that the bioinformatic interpretation of the signal data from embryos is just better in some PGT labs, the algorithm that they use may be superior to others? And I think, yes, and I think this paper is some really good evidence to suggest this. But again, more questions for you two. Where do we go from here? What is the responsibility of the reference lab? And what is the responsibility of the clinic? So I want to open this up for discussion because I can't quite I can't quite wrap my head around it. Yeah, Eve, this was a great paper, and I'm glad it was this chosen as a seminal contribution because it it opens up all of those questions you just mentioned. So listen, this is not a methodologically sophisticated paper. <laughs> we, we all should be screaming confounding here. You know, what, what is it that could also be affecting these differences other than just the, the lab? But having said that, I think you've got to say it's it's not just the algorithm because if the algorithm if it were the algorithm you you should add the mosaics and the, the the euploid and you should get roughly the same number but the pregnancy rate should be the same the fact that you're taking a euploid embryo however it's called and the pregnancy rate is different suggests there's something else going on what the else is wow that's that should be the um the, the reason for research for the next 10 years that's 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 the question in my mind Eve, you raised a good point about what is the responsibility of the clinic versus the responsibility of the reference lab. And I think an extension of this study would be to actually look at those different pairs, look at embryos created from clinic A with lab A, embryos created in clinic A with lab B, lab C and lab D and so forth. If With the right amount of numbers, you could really be able to hone in on, is there something that's clinic specific about who's doing the trophectoderm biopsy, how they're doing it, the experience of that center in doing trophectoderm biopsy. I think all of that may arrive a little bit closer to the truth. Can you tell Eve, did, did all clinics, like did clinic A go to lab A or did clinic A send labs, I mean, embryos to all four labs? Uh, you know, it wasn't parceled out in this paper, but I can tell you as a participating clinic in my previous practice, we would send 
PGT results to whatever lab the patients wanted to send it to or whatever lab the physician wanted to send it to. And we currently use eggs from Donor Egg Bank. And we too, I mean, we don't encourage PGT and donor eggs, but for those that do want to do PGT, that PGT will go to one of three reference labs that our program uses. So I, I do agree that looking at this data these data in a more refined fashion and breaking it down and looking and seeing where might those differences lie. I still suspect that it's clinic level and superiority of culture systems and superiority of biopsy technique and vitrification, but it does give me a lot of pause. And maybe it's a little bit of each, Kurt, because your point is really well taken and I want to go back to that that if it was simply the algorithm, then once you have a euploid, all embryos should be the same, but they're not. So even in that reference laboratory A, which by the way is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different clinics, you're still seeing a higher live birth rate in that population. Yeah, so there's two take-home messages here. First of all, our clinic is different. We send probably 90, 95% of our genetic tests to one lab. So so you've got that problem here of, of parsing it all out. But I think the two findings here are clearly clinical technique can affect outcome. And look at the difference in the rate of euploidy or mosaic by the different algorithms. And you need to know that. I mean, there's this, because not every patient's going to have five embryos that are euploid to choose from. So as good as we think we are at this procedure, this is, this paper is telling us there's a lot of, I guess, refinement and improvement that can still be done. Agree. Well, let's keep talking about IVF since we have some other good IVF articles in this month's table of contents. Kurt, you have a, an original article in the assisted reproduction section looking at the question of long-term vitrification of blasts. Yeah, I was excited to talk about this, especially after the article Eve just mentioned, because this is a really a, a second fundamental question in our field. The, the title of this paper, Pregnancy and Neonatal Outcomes After Long-Term Vitrification, the rest of the titles of blastocyst among 6,900 patients after their first live birth is basically asking this really big question. How long can I keep my embryos stored? And this has never really been studied before. There is some preliminary studies and some smaller studies that said that perhaps the age of your embryos, especially with cleavage age embryos, is affected by storage. But no one, I haven't seen a case series this big. So this is not surprisingly out of China to get this kind of numbers. Uh, 6,900 subjects in one center, and it's out of Shandong University. And again, the goal is really straightforward to evaluate whether prolonged storage of vitrified blastocyst negatively impacts pregnancy and neonatal outcomes. So again, as I mentioned, it's a single center with 6,900 patients who had a live birth and then have vitrified embryos and come back to try another pregnancy. So again, I want to be clear, and I might have said this three times, this is this is vitrification and this is blastocyst. This isn't like uh, you know, apples to oranges and other studies. This is what we do commonly here in the United States, even though this study is from China. So they take this large number, they divide it into five groups. The control group is less than three years of storage. And then they have groups three to four years, four to five, five to six, and greater than six. There are a couple really interesting findings here. The methodology isn't all that sophisticated, just like the study Eve mentioned. It basically looks at different groups and controls for things that we want to control for, and I'll get back to that in a second. But what it basically says is three important points. The first one was, I was impressed 
or not impressed with how many embryos actually survived. So out of these 6,900 subjects, only 1% of them were unable to have a transfer for their second live birth or their attempt because they had no embryos left. In other words, the embryos didn't survive vitrification or thawing. Uh, That's a low number. But actually, then I said, how can it be that good? And it, it was because they had multiple embryos stored. Actually, the single blastocyst survival rate ranged from 93 to 75%. And that I didn't think was so good. So we have really pluses and minuses here. But I guess the answer is I'm getting ahead of myself that th- these patients had a lot of embryos that were frozen, which is why it makes that overall success rate seem better than perhaps I would have expected. So they aggregated the data, and to save you a little bit of time, there was not a lot of difference in live birth or clinical birth or um, even chemical pregnancy rate if your embryo was stored for less than six years. But when the embryo was stored for more than six years compared to less than three years, there were some statistical differences. There was about a 28% reduction in pregnancy rate, um, and that's the main finding. So the odds ratio of pregnancy is 0.73. So this is basically saying half full, half empty, um, it's that your embryos um, survive very well over time, but perhaps we can see a modest difference if the embryos are stored for more than six years. So again, simple methodology, large numbers, the stats are fine, they control for things we'd want to control for, but there are pros and cons of something like this. The study basically had women from 2011 to 2021 we could argue that that's perhaps the age of vitrification, that, that this, the techniques are stable. But then again, it's possible that, you know, in 2011, 2012, which are the oldest embryos, that the technique wasn't as good as it is today. But I think the main thing to point out here, as much as this answers a big picture question, no study is perfect. And there are some generalizable issues here that I want to bring out. This is clearly a Chinese population. The age of the patients are 28. The BMI is 22. The number of frozen blasts each of these patients had was four or more, and the number of eggs they're getting is 13 to 15. So this is not the typical U.S. patient. So while I can say from this paper, the big picture, again, I like to have the data flow over you. The big picture is it seems to be that cryopreservation is relatively stable for the first six years, perhaps does diminish with age. I don't know if six years is the actual cutoff, but it's the cutoff proposed here. But you're not going to get the subtlety out of this. Without doubt, I'm convinced that you know your, your survival rates are going to be affected by the quality of the embryo, the age of the patient, the embryologist who, who actually performed the technique, whether it was biopsied or not. And you can't get that detail out of this paper. So um, let the data flow over you. Uh, it's, um, it, 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 if I want to use a cliche, so we've learned that perhaps on a long-haul flight, the most difficult part is the takeoff and the landing, but it might depend if you're flying to Chicago or to Australia on how safe the flight is. Man, that's a good one, Kurt. I love it. You know, and I will say, I don't have a lot of patients who vitrify their embryos for six years or more, like in thinking about it. Perhaps those who come back for a third child or maybe a fourth child, but even so, it's a long duration. And clinically, I'm not, I think it's a great nugget to have, but I'm not sure how relevant it is to my own practice. I would have loved to see it one year, two year, three years, like in smaller, more realistic intervals. 
does vitrification really matter? Um, I think the answer to that is probably no, but it was great. I like that they looked at it. I think it, again, is a good nugget to have, and we will just let that flow over us. (laughs) It even matters. So, I mean, I have this conversation a lot, especially with embryo donation, especially when, (laughs) I guess the most common one is when we give someone a notification, we haven't heard from you in six years, and we're going to discard your embryos, and all of a sudden they want them. I think this is valuable. I just, I, again, it's just not super precise. Yeah, and I think it's how generalizable is it, right? This is a finding from a single center. It's huge data numbers, but how it, does it translate laboratory to laboratory? Yeah. I've heard my colleagues often say, it doesn't matter how long the embryos are in storage. And now at least we can get rid of that cliche, because it does. Right, you can say that there are data to suggest that right. it might matter. And there was a paper published in a a different journal in Europe, which will go unnamed, that looked at this from a oocyte cryopreservation, particularly vitrified oocytes, and showed a very similar trend, that there was a deterioration in survival and reproductive potential of long-term cryopreservation of oocytes. So maybe there's something there. But I think the elephant in the room here for both of those studies is that we're looking at the first probably... 500 vitrification attempts of blastocysts in this clinic in 2011. And then we're also looking at the last 500 um, to get us close to 7,000 vitrified blasts. I have to imagine that there is some improvement in technique, rigor, quality of vitrification that is impacting to some degree those embryos that are now being thawed six years later from 2011. I think that's one huge elephant in the room. The other question I have is why? If we truly think that these embryos are turned to glass, stuck in ice, and not aging any further once they're vitrified, what's the actual mechanism by which this this embryo is actually deteriorating in its ability to survive or deteriorating in its ability to yield um, pregnancies? And I I don't have the answer for that. I think there's just one sentence in the discussion that mentions there's been some suggestion that there are ongoing epigenetic changes with ongoing vitrification and cryopreservation of embryos, but I think the why is still unanswered for me. Yeah, but I I might not know the answer to your why, but but I find it hard to believe that it's an absolute, that you can freeze something forever. I mean, it, freezing is an absolute. And listen, it adds to the other big issue about how many embryos we're storing and for how long, you know, these long-term facilities. There's so many things that can go wrong with a tank of, of vitrified embryos that um, we shouldn't, I don't know, we should be minimizing the need to freeze embryos this long. I have the next article in this January edition of Fertility and Sterility. And if you've been listening to this podcast, listeners know that one of my passions is understanding how to make ART conceived pregnancy safer by understanding where some of the risks may come from. And one area in which we've been talking a lot about in ART associated risk is in third party reproduction. Oocyte donation has been described as having a threefold higher risk of severe hypertensive disorders of pregnancy compared to autologous oocyte conceived pregnancies. And this has been attributed to the immunologic hypothesis of the embryo being an allergenic uh, foreign body causing abnormal placentation or placental function by nature of changing the immune response to that embryo. In cases of embryo donation, which is what we're going to be talking about in this article, where the fetus is fully allergenic to the parents, meaning sperm and egg are foreign to that intended mother, this immunologic tolerance and subsequent risk for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy may be further heightened. This study sought to examine this by looking at data from 2003 to 2018 in six French ART centers performing embryo donation. They designed this as a matched cohort study where the exposed group were singleton pregnancies after FET of donated embryos, 
And the non-exposed group was singletons after FET from autologous oocytes. They were matched two to one on mother age, parity, and embryo transfer date. The primary outcome was hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, and the secondary outcomes were the relevant obstetric complications that we talk about when looking at ART-associated risks. They performed a logistic regression to analyze the risk for severe hypertensive disorders and adjusted for the things that you should adjust for, age, PMI, previous pregnancy, as well as the endometrial preparation and number of embryos transferred. In total, not huge numbers, but again, embryo donation, particularly in France, is a, a rare occurrence, but there were 73 singleton pregnancies that resulted from donated embryos that were matched to 136 singletons from autologous FETs. This is a young group of women, mean age was 35, they were also thin, BMI was 24, and when comparing groups, hormone replacement cycles were more commonly used in donation cycles, 87%, versus autologous cycles, 56%. So what do they find in terms of clinical outcomes? Well, miscarriage, ectopic, and live birth rates were similar across groups. But with regard to the primary outcome of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, they found that these hypertensive disorders occurred significantly more frequently in donated embryo pregnancies, 24% of the time, compared to autologous FET pregnancies, 11% of the time. And the strongest difference was actually for the severe forms of hypertensive disorders, severe preeclampsia and HELP syndrome, which occurred 17.0 versus 4.6% of the time. You may be asking yourself, well, this is probably due to differences in the frozen embryo transfer protocol. Well, among women conceiving using the hormone replacement protocols, preeclampsia was significantly associated with higher preeclampsia compared to autologous oocytes, 20 versus 5%. Now, looking at their multivariable logistic regression modeling, only embryo donation was significantly associated with severe hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and carried an odds ratio of 2.09. The re replacement cycle type was not found to confound the relationship after they adjusted for BMI, maternal age, and previous pregnancy. So what do we do with these results? Clearly, we're not going to abandon the practices of embryo donation as it serves an important role for many of our patients despite its increased risk. But let's think a little bit about who these patients typically are in the U.S. Often they're women of significantly advanced age who have exhausted efforts at autologous oocyte creation. As a result, they may be entering pregnancy with pre-existing comorbidities such as elevated BMI, hypertensive disorders, diabetes. And when you superimpose that to the potential risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with donated embryos, for a lot of these women, it may represent a second hit. These are pregnancies where risk reduction, I think, is the way forward. And it may take the form of optimizing pre-pregnancy comorbidities, talking about the initiation of aspirin, and ultimately, I think, just communicating some of these ART-associated risks to their obstetricians in an effort to mitigate and more carefully manage some of these pregnancies. Ultimately, I think if this study is going to be replicated and expanded on, and I would, I would love to see matching based on FET protocol, since I think we have enough noise that maybe the presence of a corpus luteum may be important here, but I would also like to see ascertainment of the history of prior hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, prior growth restriction, and just a more careful listing of some of the comorbidities that these women were entering pregnancy with. Until then, though, I think tread lightly, but counsel strongly. Kurt, Eve, your thoughts? Yeah, I think what I struggle with a lot in this paper is when you look at the data from gestational carriers, we don't see the same thing. And so what I'm trying to understand is what is the difference between a gestational carrier who accepts an embryo that is different uh, from both gametes to an intended parent who receives a donated embryo? And why would there be such a marked difference in outcomes? 
I suspect one of the things may just be the exposure to a previous pregnancy. I think gestational carriers by and large have had one successful pregnancy and women who I think are considering embryo donation may not have. And what that does to the immune tolerance to that pregnancy and the allogenicity of that embryo, there may be something there, but I don't think that's the answer. I don't think that's it. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at the table, when they look at the percentage of hormone replacement cycles versus natural cycles, I think that as we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, the presence of a corpus luteum probably has some something to do with um, with prevention of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And so that was a statistically significant difference between groups. And so you could also say that perhaps that's a reason. However, again, most gestational carriers are doing programmed FETs because you don't want to have any question about origin of pregnancy. So this is interesting to me, but I I don't know how to think about it because it's very different than how we think about other situations like gestational carriers. I'd like this article, Pietro, because I don't think it definitively answers the question here. I think it proposes more questions than it answers. But the idea that we're studying this is why something like this belongs in fertility and sterility and, and generates a discussion. You know, the hypothesis about the difference in, uh, in immunogenicity and the, the, whether it's the corpus luteum are all really great thoughts, but I don't want to start propagating falsities that we know the answer. <laughs> this is why we why we get papers like this. This is why we study them. So let's not speculate too much, but um, applaud the, the work that you have and, and hopefully build upon it. Yeah, it's also really small numbers. And so I would encourage those programs who are doing larger numbers of embryo donation to really look at their outcomes and report it. I think it would be fascinating to see whether or not we see this finding um, in the U.S. and fascinating to see whether or not we this finding holds true with a much larger number of patients. Yep. I'll have to write a letter to the editor because I have a patient coming up soon who has a donated embryo that she's receiving that's been vitrified for over six years. <laughs> um, and I'll have to mention both of these articles. Let's keep going with other good articles in this month's FNS. And I think this is another steal for Eve Feinberg, diagnosing ectopic pregnancy, something that I classically think of as a Barnhart article. But Eve, tell us about this article and how we can apply Bayes' theorem to our diagnosis and management of ectopic. So you're not entirely off base. It is somewhat of a Barnhart article, given that he is a middle author. So the title of this paper is Diagnosing Ectopic Pregnancy Using Bayes' Theorem, a Retrospective Cohort Study. And the first author is Carlos Link with senior author Ricardo Savares. And for those of you who may not recall what Bayes' Theorem is, Bayes' Theorem describes the probability of an event based on previous knowledge of conditions that might be related to the event. And this theorem specifically gives us the probability of having a condition given the test is positive. To calculate this probability, the prevalence of the condition, along with the sensitivity and specificity of the test, are considered in the formula. The sensitivity and specificity may be translated into the likelihood ratio, and the result of this test yields a post-test probability, and a clinical decision can then be made. The objective of this study was to verify the performance of an online open access calculator for diagnosing ectopic pregnancy using a real cohort of first trimester patients attending a gynecologic emergency unit in southern Brazil. The calculator considers the risk of ectopic pregnancy based on clinical data, 
like the presence of pain, vaginal bleeding, free fluid, or an anexal mass, with risk factors such as history of prior ectopic or infertility, along with the likelihood ratio of transvaginal ultrasound findings and HCG levels. The calculator will give a post-test probability and a post-test probability of less than 1% excludes the diagnosis of ectopic and greater than 95% confirms the diagnosis. Prior to application of the algorithm, the diagnostic performance of transvaginal ultrasound and the discriminatory zone of HCG was calculated at this particular institution. And for those planning on using this calculator, that will need to be calculated for each institution where this is going to be implemented. And I think that's a really important point. So the study looked at all first trimester pregnant women who presented to this hospital over a seven-year time period who underwent a transvaginal ultrasound for any reason. Women were excluded who were found to be greater than 13 weeks pregnant, who were obviously undergoing a miscarriage, or who had acute findings requiring immediate surgery. The mathematical algorithm was performed in all cases. Pre-test and post-test probabilities and post-test odds of the algorithm were calculated simultaneously. Transvaginal ultrasound findings and HCG values were obtained from the participants' electronic records in cases of POL. HCG levels were measured according to the institutional protocol with women returning every 48 hours until a final diagnosis was reached. There were 2,185 cases used in the final analysis. There were 212 ectopics for a total incidence of 8.5%. The incidence of ectopic in those presenting with pain and bleeding was 13.3%. The accuracy of the model was found to be 97.7% after a sensitivity analysis was performed, including cases where a misdiagnosis was made. There were 27 false negatives, cases that were excluded but actually were ectopic pregnancy, and there were 22 false positives, cases that were thought to be ectopic but were not. And in this group, there were eight surgeries that were performed in patients. Six were thought to be justifiable based on an, an anexal mass or free fluid. Two patients had a normal pelvis, and two surgeries may have been avoided. I especially liked in this paper, and I'm very curious to talk to Kurt about this, but I liked the two case examples that highlight the real-world use of this calculator, because admittedly, I think it's kind of a complicated paper, Kurt. Um, basically, the calculator can potentially eliminate or reduce the number of visits in order to arrive at a diagnosis, and it moves patients directly to treatment Alternatively, it can provide more reassurance that it's not an ectopic and it may be a failing intrauterine pregnancy, but one that doesn't need surgical management. So Kurt, I want to hear more from you on this because I have to say I had to read this paper a few times to really wrap my head around it and understand how this model worked. Thanks, Eve. Um, this is a, a kind of fun paper. Let me just draw a couple of comparisons. First of all, this is a, an emergency room-based paper. This is not how we handle patients from our IVF clinics, for example. But clearly, you know, diagnosing ectopic pregnancy has been difficult for the 
especially for a woman presenting to the emergency room. And this idea of pre-test and post-test probability is intuitive to a lot of people, especially someone like Ricardo Savaris, who's a really brilliant statistician and gynecologist. He clearly can see this. You know, he can see, look, there's information that's going to go into this model to tell me the right answer. So this was a, a very complicated attempt to say, let me quantitate that. So why do we need a model like this? Well, I think the answer is this is what we do in our head every time we see a patient without like without numbers. We look at somebody and we calculate from our medical school training all the history and then say, what's the probability that I'm right here? And usually we just jump to a diagnosis and we assume we are right. This is basically quantitating that. And for those that trust numbers better than their intuition, by the way, I think we should trust numbers better than our intuition um, as a general rule, we'll find that this might be helpful. Will it be helpful every day in patients? Uh, that's a big question. In Europe, they use these models called M3 and M4, which is online co- calculators, which have been also demonstrated to be with success rates in the 90. So it really kind of begs the question, do you want a mathematical reassurance of your diagnostic process, or do you want to just go with it because you think your clinical acumen is very good? We'll probably have to go a long way before this is actually used every day. I think there's going to be a time when we can actually have something on our phone and do this more, much more simple. But this actually shows the logic is correct and the logic can help you. So that, I think, is the value of the paper, not the yet practical use of it. I appreciate the mention, Eve, that you highlighted that the article says that you need to recalculate this data based on your clinic-specific data. You can't extrapolate what's happening in the south of Brazil to how your clinic will perform in terms of its sensitivity for ultrasound Um, and the ability to detect the important things like free fluid and exome masses to feed into this calculator. Except that, I I mean, that statement is correct, as as stated, but we all, I mean, we've been doing this for decades now, but looking at ultrasounds and HCG levels. So we've gotten pretty stable in terms of techniques. So it's hard for me to believe that ultrasound is very different in Brazil than it is in the United States, but perhaps. But I think the big question I had for this paper, and even being a co-author, is how good do you have to be before you say this should be used? So is 97% good enough? Like in medical terms, that's great, but we don't want to miss an ectopic and we don't want to interrupt a pregnancy. So do we need better than 97%? What do you guys think the, the target should be on this? Yeah, I had that same question. And I think what worried me a little bit, which is why I highlighted both the false positives and the false negatives, The stakes are really high, and I think the stakes are really high, particularly, and I know this was not designed for ART, but particularly ART pregnancies. Um, I'm not sure I would take somebody to the operating room. If clinically they didn't seem like they were unstable, but they had a number that was suggestive of an ectopic, I'm not sure that I would act on it just yet. So I don't know. I don't know that there is a number other than 100% that would make me that would force me to go to surgery or give methotrexate that would overrule my own intuition on this. Well, I'm thrilled the paper got published. Obviously, I had nothing to do with the publication of this because there was a wall between me and my own papers in fertility and serility, as there should be. But I, I assume the reviewers felt that this was, again, a good statistical mathematical paper. It's up to you guys and us on the podcast to say whether we should use it clinically every day in practice. Moving away from ectopic, let's talk about ovarian reserve. And I love talking about articles published by friends and not that you're not a fret, Kurt, but I like articles published by recently graduated fellows. This month's FNS has a really great one from Dr. Ben Harris and colleagues at the Duke Fertility Center with senior author 
Dr. Ann Steiner, who I think most of you know. Most of us are already familiar with Dr. Steiner's work, particularly the landmark study Time to Conceive, which followed women for one pregnancy attempt for up to one year and demonstrated limited utility of AMH in predicting a woman's current fertility. The question that was left unanswered was, does AMH predict future fertility? The authors expertly looked at that Time to Conceive cohort, which as a reminder, were women 30 to 44 years of age with a male partner who had been trying to conceive without tubal factor infertility, PCOS, endometriosis, or prior fertility treatment. And of the 831 that they initially enrolled, 62% conceived within a year. At the completion of that study period, patients were invited to be part of an ongoing data and biomarker collection study. And this provided a total of 336 women that were available for analysis in this follow-up study. The study's primary outcome was the probability of future live birth and the probability of future infertility. And the authors stratified their analysis of probability based on AMH levels. And they chose an AMH cutoff of 0.7 less than versus greater than as their threshold for looking at diminished ovarian reserve versus a normal ovarian reserve. They found no differences in the probability of live birth between groups. Similarly, the probability of live birth did not differ for women with high FSH levels, another one of their stratifications, FSH levels less than 10 versus greater than 10. And lastly, both FSH and AMH groupings were not associated with the risk of future diagnosis of infertility. A short methodologic approach to this question and a short results section if you read the paper, but I think ultimately the answer that a lot of us are looking for is, is low AMH predictive of future fertility and a future diagnosis of infertility? And I think the conclusion is, in patients with a diagnosis of DOR based on an AMH of less than 0.7, there did not appear to be a reduction in the probability of live birth or an increase in the probability of infertility compared to women with AMH levels above 0.7. I think this is helpful counseling data for patients who are contemplating delaying family building or preserving gametes or creating embryos. But even, Kurt, does this data change how you talk to patients about AMH, particularly the ones with DOR levels below 0.7? And if so, how? I don't think it changes anything, but I think it reaffirms what I have been telling patients for a long time, that AMH level will not predict fertility. And that's really where I struggle with some of these direct-to-consumer tests that market AMH as a fertility test. But what I think is really important is AMH is really sensitive for response to injectable gonadotropins. And so while I tell patients that it will not predict fertility or infertility, what it does tell us is that if you do fall into that category of patients who have infertility, a low AMH will make it much harder to treat your infertility than somebody who has a normal AMH. But I found this paper incredibly reassuring. I really like it. And I just think that there's this giant market out there for direct-to-consumer testing that is advertising falsely. Yeah, my thoughts are similar, Pietro. Um, I think it does change the way I talk to patients because I haven't had the confidence that Eve does all the time about saying, don't worry about it. Um, because patients come in and say, this is not what other people told me. This is not what the practice down the street told me. That's This is not what the direct-to-consumer advertisements have suggested. So now I have more objective data to, to demonstrate that, that that what Eve was saying is correct, that um, AMH is not the foreboding test that all hope is gone and that you really can get pregnant. Now, we've all had our anecdotes of patients where we've tried to get their eggs and we've gotten two eggs at a time. And then 
a year later, they come back with a family. So we, we know that AMH is not always predicting their fertility, but just getting that message across is really, really tough. I just want to push back on that a little bit. I didn't make those data up. So those data that AMH does not impact fertility was actually from Einsteiner's original time to conceive paper. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with the words here. I'm just saying that this is a really difficult message, right? Patients just don't hear it. And, and the more information we have, and again, with, with repetitive papers that are giving the same message, the more confidence we can, we can get that um, falsehood out of our, well, our narrative. And I think that People have to stop thinking about AMH as a fertility check. And I think that a lot of this lies within the OBGYN specialist who sees women for annual exams. Don't check an AMH. Like, I don't understand what good can come out of checking an AMH. If you get a low AMH, you cause a lot of anxiety. If you get a high AMH, you may cause false reassurance. The number one predictor of whether or not somebody will conceive is female age. And so uh, you don't need a laboratory test to give you a predictor of whether or not the fecundability rates will be normal. Look at the age. That is the message of the podcast. Everybody wants a lab test, the simple lab test that says, this is what I do. This is the prognosis. And the answer is, it's just not that darn simple. So wait, um, Kurt, is not the test. It's different than what you said. It's different than what you said when discussing your paper that that numbers are better than intuition. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Right. Numbers over time and pretest, right? I bet there's a way that you can do a model that takes AMH and 10 other things and might give you a prediction. But just there, it's just not so simple to have one lab test for an OBGYN and then say, do this or do that. We all want it. It's intuitive. It's simple, but it's just not reality. Kurt, why don't you round us out of the podcast, pivoting here and talking a little bit about letrozole treatment in patients with letrozole resistance? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this paper. And again, not because of the statistics or the epidemiology or, or the methodology. This is a really nice clinical paper that I want to describe to you. So the title is Extending Letrozole Treatment Duration is Effective in Inducing Ovulation in Women with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome and Letrozole Resistance. So this is a, a glorified case series. That There is nothing really dramatic about what happened here, but it's a well done out of group in Shanghai. Um, basically, they said, what do we do with these patients that are not ovulating on letrozole that have PCOS, a common clinical problem. So what they said was, let's take a group of women that didn't ovulate on five milligrams of letrozole for five days and see what we can do. And they, this was an open label study where they said, well, let's try something different. And they tried two different regimes, which was letrozole at five milligrams for seven days. And if that didn't work, letrozole five milligrams for 10 days. So it's a really kind of just a natural experiment that basically says if you extend the letrozole beyond this traditional five-day window that we all use, what happens? Um, so what happened was out of the 69 women that they tried, if the then then and their next cycle gave them seven days of letrozole, 48 of them ovulated. And of those that didn't, they tried another cycle with seven days and an additional 16 ovulated. Um, and in reality, only five didn't. So the ovulation rate was 93%. The pregnancy rate was pretty good, 31%. The live birth rate, 24%. And there were only two sets of twins. So this shows you that it's feasible. And those are the author's words. And this is why I like the paper, because I agree. All you can say is that this is feasible. You can't say that it's better. You can't say that this is that should be primary care. All you can say is this seems to work. 
And there's some nice descriptions I want to share with you. So the follicles looked about the same size. They were the biggest ones were 31 and 29 millimeters. The endometrial stripe looked good, was seven millimeters, which I'd expect. The time to ovulation was about the same, 16 to 17 days. And it seemed to work better in patients that had oligoamenorrhea compared to amenorrhea, which also makes sense. So what you can say is somebody did this and now I can learn from it. So it's novel. It adds something to our armamentarium. And again, the author stops short of claiming fantastical observations like better, superior, um, you know, first line. All they basically said was, hey, you can do this. So it adds something that we can consider on our own. And someone else is obviously going to design the study. Is it, is it better or worse? Now, listen, every, every paper has limitations. The limitation on this one, in my mind, is how letrozole resistant were these patients. It was just one cycle where they didn't uh, ovulate and um, they used the Rotterdam criteria as opposed to uh, the more strict NIH criteria. So this might not be truly resistant, resistant patients, but it, it adds something. But I want to add to you guys too, it begs the question, what's the right dose of letrozole? And remember, we took a stab at it. Um, in the PPCOS trial with Rick Legros, we guessed five milligrams for five days. But, you know, that could have been wrong. If you ask Rick, he'll say that the dose might actually be need to be higher than five milligrams because only 90% of people ovulated in PPCOS. But I've noticed the reverse. All of my colleagues and people in private practice are, are using 2.5 milligrams as a first line. And I, I can't figure that out. But this one is basically saying longer doses seem to work. Let's just leave it at that. I liked it. I mean, I will say this was a little bit different than how I do a letrozole cycle. And I think, again, based off like older green journal data showing that you don't need a withdrawal blade between attempts. So I typically will do five milligrams, bring the patients back five days after the last dose of letrozole, check with ultrasound to see whether or not a follicle has developed. If there's no follicular development, then I'll escalate to 7.5 milligrams without an intervening withdrawal blade. If there's still no response, then I often will combine Clomid plus letrozole as third line. And usually you get ovulation at some point in this. And so I think where this is helpful Maybe to say, okay, if you don't ovulate or we don't see a follicle, then rather than jumping up to 7.5, let's just initiate five milligrams of letrozole for 10 days. And so I think it's just another tool that we have in our toolbox of how do we get patients to ovulate. And I thought it was reassuring that of the patients who ovulated with the initial letrozole resistant, about 25% of those ultimately achieved a pregnancy. And so I think it really shows that perhaps that FSH uh, resistance can be overcome with a longer duration of electrozole exposure. So I really liked it. I love papers that allow us to try something new that's evidence-based. And I think it may be something that I incorporate into my own practice for some patients. Yeah, I use the exact same protocol as you, Eve. And I, I, I don't use the Provera withdrawal bleed in between redosing attempts. For me, I think this fits in as a third line. I still like the approach of trying one medication, maxing out that dose, trying the addition with Clomid, since I think we have a lot of experience with Clomid. But this as a third line, just extend it before moving to something even more aggressive or invasive. It's a nice move to have in your back pocket. Yeah, interesting, though, that we're all advocating this. And you know, the, the editor-in-chief of me says, this is 
not really evidence based. This is look. This is this is the this is really look. Look, I did it and it works. It's um, you know we really don't have probably the time and energy and, and necessity to figure out exactly what's the right dose of letrozole and the exact duration. So something that's common and safe like this, I think we can use this kind of clinical um, data. But uh, listen, we you know adopting the the no. Um, Provera in between cycles. That was just somebody did it and showed that it worked. Again, it's not evidence-based. It's just saying, hey, you can do this. Yeah. And I think going back to that paper, though, they actually showed a lower ongoing pregnancy rate for those patients that had a Provera withdrawal in between. So I, I think that that's probably the biggest nugget that I took away is just keep going. Why, like, why waste a whole month yeah. of time in trying to give Provera wait for a period, start over, just keep on going. I often say to patients, it's not a frequent ovary that I meet that I can't force to ovulate. <laughs> so what do you guys think about the 2.5 milligrams? That's something that I've, I've, that seems to have caught on. And I don't know the evidence for that. I, I never start with 2.5. If I'm using letrozole, I start with five based on exactly the data that you brought up, Kurt. From Rick Legro. Um, I can't think of a reason why 2.5 would be a starting dose for me. I don't know. What do you think, Eve? I start with five, but admittedly, I know many people that start with 2.5 and have success with it. So I don't think it's wrong. It just might lead to more wasted time. I, I, the rationale I've heard is that it you get unifollicular growth. That's the rationale that you're limiting twins. But I, I think the twins with five milligrams, or even in this paper that goes five milligrams or longer, is not exceptionally high. So I think it's, I don't, I'm trying to be nice, but I think it's placebo, but placebo has a place in medicine as well. I think you're going to get a letter to the editor for that comment, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, as you guys have all noticed, there's a ton of really good science coming out in FNS. And of course the podcast is place number one to listen, but we always encourage people to go to the website. And if you're not following us on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn accounts, there's a ton of really rich content there where you can stay up to date with fertility and sterility family journals content. Until next time, see you in the new year, Kurt, Eve, and Micah. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure sharing all this content with you and uh, happy new year, everybody. Happy new year, everyone. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. <laughs>